0: We are in John chapter 15, and we're in what is called the farewell discourse, the night before the Lord's crucifixion, just hours from our text, he will be arrested, he will be uh, put through a sham of a trial, and he will be crucified. But the Lord, knowing what's coming and when it's coming, spends this last evening with his disciples, encouraging them, teaching them, uh, preparing them for his departure, preparing them for life and ministry without him. And so we're part. Of, we're in this farewell discourse. It goes from chapter 13 through 16, and we've seen that there is a flow through these through this whole discourse that we kind of lose when we chop it up into sermonic bits like this. But there is a flow. Last time we were in the first part of chapter 15, where Jesus said, "I'm the vine; you are the branches. Abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. Uh, apart from me, you can do nothing." So there's that. The vine and the branches, and that's going to flow right into our text this morning. We'll pick up where we left off last time. We're in John 15, beginning with verse 12. <clears throat> this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. So in our text this morning, we have twin themes. We have love and hate we're going to find out we are commanded to love and we're to be prepared to be hated. So if you have your bulletin, you have that listening guide on the back panel, we start first of all with this command to love. We are commanded to love. Um, we have this triad of love we've seen as we go through the Gospel of John, where the father loves the son, the son loves his followers, and his followers are to love one another. Edward Klink said that the, the love of God for Christians becomes the love of God between Christians. I want you to see, first of all, that this this command to love one another is indeed a command. We are commanded to love one another. Jesus was asked during his earthly ministry, Master, what is the the great commandment? What's the first and foremost commandment? What's the most important commandment? Now, the Jews had had identified some 600-plus commands in the Old Testament, and so that was kind of a trick question. A, A lawyer asked that question. What's the most important commandment? What stands out? And Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the great commandment. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. That is an Old Testament command. It's a commandment. Now, we back in chapter 13, again, this same setting, this farewell discourse up in the upper room, Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And when we dealt with that in, in that setting, we saw that, that the commandment to love one another is, is not new in itself. That's old. That goes back to the Mosaic law. That's the Old Testament But the newness of it is that Jesus is the standard. You love one another as I have loved you. But again, that's the same. It's the same setting, same night, same discourse. Just moments later, Jesus says in verse 12, here's my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And verse 17, this I command you that you love one another. In fact, those two commandments, those two verses form an inclusio around what's inside it. It's a book. Bookends. So three times in this same evening, in this same setting, with the same audience, Jesus says, I'm giving you a commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. It's not a wish. It's not a suggestion. Guys, would you all please try to love one another? That'd be great. Would you, you try, could you think you might love one another? No, it's a command from our sovereign Savior. I'm commanding you, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. It's a command. Now, we've seen before that biblical love is not an emotion, it's an action. That God does not command us to feel a certain way about people. He's commanding us to treat people in a certain way. So he's not commanding an emotional response. He's commanding a behavioral response. He's commanding us to treat each other according to love, to act in a loving way toward one another. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's another way of saying love your neighbor as yourself. You do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you love one another as I have loved you? It is a command. Now, notice that, that Jesus is the example. He is the standard in verse 12. Love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus will do just a few hours from here. He will lay down his life for his friends. Now, back in verse 10, Jesus is the paradigm for obedience. As I have obeyed the Father's commands, you, you need to be obeying my commands. So he's the paradigm. He's the, paradigm. He's the example of obedience. Here he's the example of love. You love each other. Just look the way I do it. You, you, you love each other the way I've loved you. And he will lay down his life for his friends. Now, John, John's paying attention. And later on, our gospel writer will write first John. And in first John chapter three, he says this, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So John, John was paying attention. He took it to heart, and he tells us we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, here's what I want you to notice, too. Here's your outline. You marry the family. You marry the family. Do you all know that? If you're married, you understand you marry the family. <laughs> if you're thinking about getting married, you need to take a good hard look at your proposed spouse's family because, listen, you marry the family. <laughs> the family comes with, and your proposed spouse needs to look at your family because they're, they're, going to get, they're going to get your family. You marry the family. You get the in-laws. You get the outlaws. You get them all. And you think, well, we'll move away from them. <laughs> well, good for you. That's nice. <laughs> you still marry the family, Bubba. I mean, you, you get them all, don't you? you? You get married the family. Guess what? It's like that with Jesus. When you get saved, it's not just you and Jesus. You marry the family. There's a family that comes with the Lord. You get his family too. So you you marry the family. As you read the New Testament, you find out following Jesus is never just you and Jesus. Following Jesus is a family affair. The family of God follows and serves Jesus as a family. In fact, our gospel writer, he's going to tell us in 1 John, you can't love God without loving his family. You can't do it. Don't say you love God and hate your brother. You're a liar. No, to love God is to love his family. To love his family is to love him. You marry the family. Kenneth Gangle said this, this command could not be more simple to understand or more difficult to carry out. That's right, isn't it? Love one another as I have loved you. Well, that, that's not rocket science. I mean, that's pretty easy. I, I, I get it. Love one another. We ought to love each other as he loved us. It's easy to understand, but man, it's hard. Why is it so hard? Well, can we be honest? God's got some crazy people in his family. You know, every, every, every family tree has some nuts in it. And if you think your family tree doesn't have any nuts, then you're probably the nut in your family tree. Well, God's family tree's got some nuts in it. And there are some folks in the body of Christ that are frankly, they're just really hard to love. It's hard to carry out, but it's a command. We're to love one another as God, as Christ loved us. You know, there's an old saying, you, you get to choose your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. <laughs> you, you're stuck with your relatives. Well, let's talk about choosing friends now. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, uh, greater, uh, in verse 13, greater love is no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. What did he just command them? Love one another. That's the command that's in view. Now, it's it's not the only command, but that's the one that just came off his lips. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I love one another. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. I call you my friends. Now here we have one of those chicken and egg situations, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. We're not his friends because we love one another. We love one another because we're his friends. It's kind of like faith and works again. Remember faith and works? You're not saved by doing good works. You do good works because you're saved. You're saved by grace through faith, but a faith that saves is a faith that works. So works don't produce faith. Faith produces works, like love and obedience. We've talked about that, love and obedience. When you love him, you keep his commandments. You love him, so you obey him. And then that's what we have here. Obedience indicates love for him. Works indicates a saving faith relationship with him. And here, being his friend indicates uh, love for one another. Or, or love for one another, excuse me, loving one another indicates we are his friends, friendship with God. Now here's something intriguing. As you read the whole Old Testament, there's only one person in the Bible who is said to be the friend of God. Only one person. That was Abraham. And the Bible calls Abraham the friend of God. It's even repeated in the New Testament. Abraham is the friend of God. Now we might imply Maybe Moses could be included in that club, that Moses, you might call Moses a friend of God because it says that God spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks to his friend. So we kind of wiggle Moses in there, but only Abraham is exclusively and explicitly called the friend of God. But now here, Jesus, the son of God, God, the son says, I'm calling you my friends. That's remarkable. Warren Wearsby explains it. He says, the word means friend at court it describes that inner circle around a king or emperor. The friends of the king would be close to him and know his secrets, but they would also be subject to him and have to obey his commands. Thus, there is no conflict between being a friend and being a servant. And here in our text, the privilege and distinction of being his friend is that he discloses to us. His plans and purposes. What, what the Father, that's what he says, I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. There's that disclosure. A master doesn't have to explain his commands to his servant or to his slave. He just says jump and you just jump. You don't have to, you don't have to think, just obey. You don't have to understand it. He doesn't have to explain it. You just do what you're told. But here Jesus says, no, a friend, a friend shows the, the why and the wherefore, the, the purpose, the plan, the, the thought behind the command, the, the, what, what's going on. And he says, what, what the father has shown me, I have shown you. And so I'll call you my friends. Now here's something interesting. Nowhere does the Bible ever use the language, Old or New Testament, the Bible never uses the language of God being our friend or Jesus being our friend. Now we sing a hymn what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. But the Bible doesn't use that language. But here Jesus says, I'll call you my friends, my friends. So, so be careful. He's not our buddy, our pal. He's not, he's not our homeboy. He's not the old man upstairs. No, he's God. But our loving God dares to call us his friends if we do what he commanded, namely love one another. Well, we talked about choosing friends. You get to choose. Do you want to be a friend of God or a friend of the world? But you can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. James 4.4 4 says this. You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if you're a friend of the world, you make yourself the enemy of God, but if you're a friend of God, you'll make yourself the enemy of the world. And we're going to see what that looks like here in just a moment. Notice too, that we are chosen and appointed to bear fruit. Jesus said in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And there's an emphatic personal pronoun. I chose you. Now in that day and time, you would choose your rabbi. If there was a particular teacher that you really wanted to learn from, you wanted to emulate, sit at his feet, you wanted to be identified with that rabbi, you would pick that rabbi and make yourself a disciple of that rabbi or have to ask that teacher if you could be his student. But you chose the rabbi basically. But they, these guys, they didn't choose Jesus. Jesus said, I chose you. So they don't have any bragging rights. They can't say, look at me. Look how smart I am. I chose Jesus. (laughs) Look at me. He calls me his friend. Look at me. No, I chose you and I appointed you. I set you in place to bear much fruit, fruit that remains. And the main idea here would be converts, disciples, those who would follow Christ. Bear fruit remains. And you see all this, this takes us back to the beginning of the chapter. You abide in me and I in you, and you'll bear much fruit. But I've appointed you. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear much fruit, fruit that remains. By extension, we have the same appointment. He chose you and he has appointed you to go and bear much fruit, fruit that remains. We have the same job, the same mission, the same expectation. Well, how do we do this? Abiding in Christ is the key. Remember, there's a flow. It all goes together. It all goes together. It starts with verse 1, abide in Christ as the key. How how do we bear much fruit? You abide in Christ. How are we going to love one another? Because, boy, I mean, some Christians are hard to love. (laughs) How are we going to do this? How do we lay down our lives for the brethren? Abiding in Christ. How do we bear fruit that remains? Abide in Christ. Talking about loving one another, we're commanded to love. How are we going to pull that off? The the Holy Spirit indwells us, the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, the first fruit of the Spirit is love. It's love. As we love him, he loves us. His love is shed abroad in our hearts, and we love one another. It all comes back to abiding in Christ. Robert Munz pointed this out. The more intimate our relationship with Jesus, the greater will be our love for one another. The more intimate our relationship with Jesus, the greater our love will be for one another. When, when I'm doing premarital counseling for couples who are thinking about getting married, I tell them one of the best things you can do for your marriage is to pursue your own personal faith relationship with Jesus Christ. The better you love Jesus, the better you'll love your spouse. It's kind of like a triangle. Just think about a triangle. Here we are, husband and wife in a triangle. And the closer we get to the Lord, the closer we get to each other. And the better I love the Lord, the better I'll love my wife. The better she loves the Lord, the better she'll love me, the the closer we'll be together. And that's true in the body of Christ. As we abide in Christ, he abides in us. We abide in his love. His love abides in us. It overflows. And the better we love him, the better we'll love one another. By this all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. Oh, and by the way, it's a commandment. It is a commandment. Well, we've seen in the Gospel of John a cycle of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves and obeys the Father. The Son loves his followers. The Son's followers love and obey the Son. And now we see that as the Son loves his followers, the followers are to love one another. And the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And then we're going to see, but men loved God the darkness and hated the sun men love the darkness and that leads us to the to the next thing the next theme that is hate so we're commanded to love but be prayer be prepared to be hated let's pick up at verse 18 and we're going to go into the next chapter verse 18 if the world hates you you know that it hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love its own but because you're not of the world but i chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper, remember that's the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, "...whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. These things they will do, because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them." These things I, say, I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. It's been said that as Christians are known for their love, the world will be known for its hate. And here's what I want you to notice. One, persecution is certain. Persecution is certain. It, on more than one occasion, Jesus warned his disciples, you're going to have tribulations. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated for my name's sake. I mean, all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. So it's par for the course. Paul tells us, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First John tells us, don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Peter says the same thing. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is among you. Don't, don't be surprised like some, some strange thing is happening to you. This isn't strange. It's par for the course. It's part of following Jesus. Now, Jesus gives us several reasons. Why would the world hate Christians? After all, we're, we're so lovable. <laughs> we're you know, harmless, lovable fuzzballs. Why would the world react so violently against Christians. Why are we hated? Why are we persecuted? Well, Jesus gives us several reasons. One, because we are associated with Christ. We are associated with him. And verse 18, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. And verse 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And verse 21, they will do all these things for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. You've heard of being guilty by association. You know, you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. (laughs) Guilt by association. Well, here's hatred by association. They hate Jesus. And if you're associated with Jesus, they'll hate you. Now, by the way, when we're talking about the world in in this chapter, in this text, the world here is not the created world. It's not the created order. It is human society arrayed against God. Whatever level of organization. But it's, it's, it's the human population arrayed in opposition to God, uh, uh, humans against God. That, that, this world system under the, the reign of the evil one, that's, that's the world we're talking about. So this, this world system, it hated Jesus, it, hate, it hated his followers, and it still does. It's going to hate us by association. Number two, we're not of the world. Here's another reason the world will hate us. In verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. In Christ, we are no longer of the world. We'll hear that again in chapter 17. We're still in the world, but we're not of the world. Now, before Jesus, you were in the world, you were of the world, you're part of the world, you're part of the world system. I mean, you were just, you're part of it, and the world loved it. But when you put your faith in Christ, the Bible says that God transfers you from the domain of darkness and puts you into the kingdom of his own beloved son. And now we belong to a different kingdom. We serve a different king. We operate by a whole different set of rules and standards. We have a different vision, a different destiny, a different perspective. I mean, everything is different and we are different and the world hates that. You cannot be different. The world will not tolerate it. And so we're no longer of the world. First Peter, uh, first Peter, says, Peter t- says to his readers in 1 Peter 4, he says, you guys used to be Gentiles. You used to live like Gentiles. You used to live like people who are far from God, who didn't know God. Namely, you, you used to pursue sensuality and lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries those are the things you used to do. Now you don't do that anymore. And the world is surprised you don't do those things. And so they malign you. They criticize you. They hate you because you don't do the things you used to do. First, John, uh, First Corinthians, Paul says the same things. He, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. That's what you used to be. That's what you used to do before Christ. But now you're in Christ. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not that anymore. And the world can't stand it. You are in the world. But you're not of the world anymore. You don't do what the world does. And so you get persecuted. Here's another reason they don't know the Father. They don't know the Father. In verse 21, he says, they do not know the one who sent me. In verse 23, he who hates me hates my Father also. And then in chapter 16, in verse 3, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. What we've seen over and over in the Gospel of John, you love the Son, you love the Father, You receive the Son, you receive the Father. You trust the Son, you trust the Father. You know the Son, you know the Father. You reject the Son, you reject the Father. You hate the Son, you hate the Father as well. It's a package deal. You can't have the Father without the Son. You can't have the Son without the Father. It's a package deal. The world hated Christ and so rejects the Father and they do not know the one who sent me. We saw in John 17, or we will see in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. That is eternal life. That's how we're saved. So they don't know the Father. Here's a fourth reason they hate us, persecute us. They love sin and darkness, and they hate light and righteousness, or truth and light. We saw at the very beginning of the gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 5 said that the the light shines in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. The darkness didn't understand. And John 3, Jesus said the the judgment, the light has come into the world for men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So they rejected, and here in our text, they rejected the full light of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Here's God incarnate, God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and they rejected this full revelation of the light of God in Jesus Christ, standing right in front of Him. They rejected His works, they rejected His words, and they rejected Him. Men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The light came into the world, And the darkness comprehendeth it not. Because they love sin, they love darkness. They love darkness because they love their sin. And they hate truth and light and righteousness. As you and I live the light, live in the light, walk in the light, and proclaim the light of the gospel of salvation, we're going to be hated. Because the world loves the darkness rather than the light. Well, now let's talk about response and responsibility. How are we supposed to respond to that? The world hated Jesus, what he said, without cause. It's irrational. Why in the world would they respond so negatively to Jesus Christ? He didn't hurt anybody. He only preached truth. He demonstrated love. He revealed God. And yet, they hated him without cause. It's irrational. To hate God is irrational. To rebel against God is irrational. Sin itself is irrational. They hated him without cause. When we're hated... Without cause, it's irrational. How do we respond? Do we fight back? Do we run and hide? Do we get all cloistered up in our secluded little circles? What are we supposed to do when the world hates us without cause? Well, he tells us, verse 26. He says, the Holy Spirit, the helper, the paraclete, when he comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also. You will testify. You will bear witness of me also, because you've been with me from the beginning. What's our response? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to testify, bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our job. Lovingly, courageously, boldly testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter and John I mean, we move into, the, move into the book of Acts after Pentecost. Peter and John, they're preaching the gospel. They get arrested. They are punished, and then the religious leaders threaten them. You will stop preaching this message of Jesus Christ. You will stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John tell the religious leaders, whether it's right in the sight of God to, to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We, we can't stop. We can't stop. Paul says the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. (laughs) Really, I have no choice. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I'm under compulsion. I have to. I can't not preach the gospel, come what may. No matter what happens, I have to share the gospel. I'm going to testify of Jesus Christ. That's how we respond. Lovingly, boldly, courageously, we testify of him. Don't be surprised and don't stumble. There's your outline. Don't be surprised. In in chapter 16, verse 1, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Remember, this is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. This is that final teaching session with his disciples. And Jesus is preparing them for what is to come. And in that mode, he says, I'm telling you what's coming so you won't be surprised. And so that you won't stumble. And the word stumble there is where we get scandalized from. You won't be scandalized. I don't, I don't want you to be surprised. don't want you to be shocked. don't want you to be dismayed. I don't want you to fall down or fall back or fall away. I don't want you to be disappointed or disillusioned. You know what's coming. I'm telling you in advance. And then notice abiding in Christ is the key. Remember it all goes together? Abiding in Christ. How do we boldly, lovingly keep proclaiming Christ to a world that hates Christ and hates us and persecutes us for his name's sake. Even kills us in the name of God, thinking that they're doing God a favor. How do you stand strong? By abiding in Christ. Notice notice in verse 26, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the helper, he will testify about me and you will testify also. It's not the Holy Spirit over here, he's testifying about Jesus doing his thing, and we're over here testifying about Jesus doing our thing. No, the Holy Spirit testifies in our testifying. It's a cooperation. The Holy Spirit empowers us, equips us, emboldens us to testify, to bear witness. Remember, he's going to bring to remembrance to the disciples. He's going to bring to remembrance all the things that, that Jesus has said and taught them. We saw that before. Later on, he's going to tell them, listen, guys, you don't, when you're getting arrested and persecuted, you don't have to worry about what, you, what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say at that time, at that moment. The Holy Spirit, he emboldens, he equips, he enables us to testify. He empowers us to testify, and he's bearing witness in your witness. It's the Holy Spirit in us. Again, abiding in Christ. We abide in him. He abides in us. The Holy Spirit abides in us. We abide in him. We're filled with the Spirit. And that's the key. Abiding in Christ is the key. Let me show you one last thing. We need the love of the saints. We need the saints. And you see how it all goes together. We abide in Christ. We abide in his love. His love abides in us. How do we bear fruit? We abide in Christ. How are we going to love one another? We abide in Christ. How do we face a world that hates us because it hates Christ? By abiding in Christ. How do we faithfully testify in a hostile environment? We abide in Christ. But we're also commanded in that same sense, love one another, love one another. I'm commanding you, love one another. Why? Because we need each other. And if we're going to face a hostile world that hates us just because we love Jesus, we need to know we're not alone. And when you try to stand up for Christ in that classroom or in that workplace or in that environment or to that family member, you need to know you're not alone. And we need to know we have each other's backs. You marry the family, you got a family when you got Jesus. We need to love one another. We don't need hostility in the body of Christ. We don't need fear and suspicion and intrigue in the body of Christ. We get that out there. In the body of Christ, we need the love of the saints to know we're in this together. We love the Lord together. We're going to serve the Lord together. We testify together as we face a hostile world together. It all goes together. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been saved? Has there been a time in your life when you've repented of your sin, put your faith in Christ, asking him to forgive you and to save you? If not, that's your greatest need. And, and I invite you to come to him this morning. In a moment, we going to stand and sing our hymn of decision. I'll be right down here. I invite you to come to me and say, preacher, I need Jesus. I want to be saved or I have questions or explain it to me. However you want to say it. We'd love to talk with you privately, pray with you if you'd like to, but you can leave here today, a child of God, we invite you to come. Or if you're looking for a church home and God has brought you here, God has shown you this is where he wants you to worship and serve for this season of your life. You can come say, we want to join this church and we'll take it from there. Or to follow him in baptism or pray with somebody. We invite you to come as well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we admit that loving one another, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. It's easy to understand, but Lord, it's, sometimes it's really hard to do. Lord, help us to love one another as you loved us, that we would lay down our lives for the brethren. Lord, help us with this, that all men would know that we are your disciples because we have love for one another. God, we pray that uh, we would stand strong and faithful and loving and courageous and bold as we testify to the Lord Je- of the Lord Jesus Christ in a hostile world. Lord, seal this message to our hearts. Take, ti- take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.